Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone. I am so excited to welcome Adam Cole, the couple's financial coach, to the Healthy Love and Money podcast today. Adam and I have known each other, I don't know, Adam, probably under a year now, but I feel like even from the first conversation, I was like, I feel like I've known this guy for a long time. True. He is a warm-hearted, gregarious, thoughtful, smart, I mean, all the great adjectives. And I don't know, there's very few people that share such a shared, close, tight mission, couples and money. And you know, Adam, your outlook on couples and money overlaps pretty deeply with mine, even though we have slightly different training backgrounds. So welcome to the podcast. Can you introduce yourself and let people know a little bit about who you are and how you got to what you're doing? First of all, thanks for having me, Ed. I mean, I, I don't remember exactly when we first connected, but definitely right away, lots of uh, affinity and overlap in, in the work we do and, and how we look at it. My background is kind of it wasn't anything that I said, oh, I want to be a financial coach for couples. Let me train for this. You know, it, it there were other motivations and reasons. But long story short, uh, I studied economics. I've always been a finance geek, worked as a financial advisor for a spell before going to law school and then got a master's in tax law after that. Uh, and then once I got into the working world, so to speak, uh, was I ended up doing a lot of conflict resolution work and noticing I had a knack for that. So I got certified as a mediator. And I also noticed I had a knack for coaching and was doing a lot of self-development and coaching work. And so I started getting more experience in that space. And then later on realizing, whoa, money is the biggest stressor in relationships. It's a top cause of divorce. Yet when I go on YouTube podcast networks, Amazon to look for books. There's very few about this, right? For every hundred books you have about how to invest or, you know, 401k for dummies, you're lucky if there's one book about that focuses on the intersection of relationships and money, communication and money, love and money, and how to do that in a way that elevates your finances, but most importantly, the quality of your life and relationship. And so, I essentially looked at that and said, I think there's a huge opportunity here. Very few people are focusing on this, and yet it's a top, top stressor and cause of breakups. And I figured with the background I had, I had as good a skill set as anyone else to try and figure this thing out. And so the last or coming up on five years have has been all about how do I bring together the things that I knew when I came in? What else do I need to know? How do I help couples develop that sense of partnership, teamwork, clarity, and enough peace of mind? So not only say I have no stress about money, but can we get that like 70, 80, 90 down to like, you know, a 30, 20, maybe even a 10? (laughs) Yes, exactly. And that's such an important piece is our work is really not 
uh, on off light switch as much as a dimmer switch, right? right. Like we're trying to, it's about <laughs> incremental progress. It's not about all or nothing. Like, you know, certainly the God complex in me would love to be like, well, no, I transformed this couple. They'd never fight about money. Um, but more likely it's been like, well, these couples have really made great progress. They have a better understanding. When they do feel stress and conflict, they know how to move through it more effectively. But maybe even, I've, I think now the goal is not for a couple to never fight about money again, but right. to know how to do it in a way that doesn't destroy or hurt the relationship. Yeah, I, I had a client who once said, yeah, these conversations are no longer death traps. And I was like, okay, that is a big win, right? Yeah. Not only that the conversations are no longer so unhealthy, but also that this client was perceiving them that way as well, right? Which is only going to then encourage you to be willing to lean into them again in the future. Right, which is really the big end goal. I think I use the word financial intimacy a lot. I think you use it too. Is like, mm -hmm. how does going to talk about money actually become a place where it feels safe and inviting with your partner? And couples exist on this continuum from like not a fat chance in hell that we'll ever talk to each other about money or nor share anything, right? Is one extreme end, maybe near divorce or in divorce, yes. right? That's to like kind of a happy neutral, like we don't really talk about it, but we don't really feel great about it either. We're not at odds, but we're right. not, it's kind of the neutral couple. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know what percentage of couples out there are on this deep intimacy end of the continuum where it's like, we're open books on everything. We really feel comfortable and actually enjoy talking about our finances together. And the enjoy piece is an important part. I don't know what your sense is, but I don't know of any data out there yet that says, like, this percentage of couples. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way that I have conceptualized it in my work, uh, and this is like I have a, a what I call couples money personality type quiz. Yeah. Uh, and it's really attempting to discern like where are you at as a couple uh -huh. about money. Right? right. And I break it into four categories, which I think align with what you said. There's the emergency territory, which is like, we're either not talking about it at all. Or and when, usually when we do, it just feels really bad. Like there's a lot of negative emotions and expectations around it. Right. And then the other extreme being the rock stars who have that financial intimacy. And, you know, it's like, they look forward to it or ex are excited about it. And it doesn't mean that every conversation's fun, but every conversation they're able to come from a place that moves them closer together and more towards their ultimate vision. Right. Because some of the conversations I have with my fiance have a lot of tears involved. I don't think they would be, I, I don't know that I would consider them fun, but they do help move us in that direction but then you've got that middle group of people and I split it into two. I call it like the avoidance area, which is the like, yeah, we don't fight actively, but we do tend to avoid it as much as reasonably possible. Right. And the other group, I, I'll call it partial partners where like they're not actively looking to avoid it and they'll talk over some stuff and maybe they know a little bit about each other's finances, but they're not getting to that deeper place. Yeah. And, you know, each couple, whichever of the four buckets they're in, there could be things they do well and there could be things they're leaving on the table. And I always see it as my job is to, like you said, the incremental gains. Okay, 
how can I get them to level up? Right. For right. some couples, it's going to look really dramatic, but your transformation may look on the surface less dramatic. It could be very well because you started at a place where there was a little bit more things were working a little bit better in that sphere. Well, right. And we're not all at the same starting line. There you go. Our relationship skills and abilities. And, you know, if for one couple that's used to yelling and screaming at each other to just not yell and scream at each other might feel like monumental oh yeah progress right but for another couple it's like man we've never done that can't even i can't even imagine doing that and so that would feel like just irrelevant and so that's what's so unique and important about working with a good money coach or money therapist is they're able to meet you at your level of functioning and where you're at figure that out and then help you figure out what's that next place that next movement along the continuum towards this uh, fictitious, if you will, or perfect Shangri-La state of perfect financial intimacy that I don't know that anybody fully receives, but, <laughs> you know, that's okay. It's something to aspire to. And, you know, sure. th- no judgment for where people will decide to stop along that continuum of development as well, right? Absolutely. So there's so many ways to go, but before we hit record on this one, we're talking about men and money. And yep. you and I are both guys. I'm going to own it. I'm a white guy. I don't know how you identify, but I'm assuming similarly. Sure. White, Jewish, which it has interesting implications for the money conversation. I'm happy to talk about, but white is how I, the world sees me and ultimately how I see myself. Yeah. So just owning where we're both coming from, I, I know that you're very interested in social justice and trying to be aware of all the layers that come into how what we're saying shape what we're saying even and mm-hmm. either earned or um, the privilege of both being now highly educated guys. So right. that being said, men, money, and couples, you, what do you think? What's, what's really going on there for us guys and money and like what makes it so problematic <laughs> for the people that love us? Yeah. I mean, obviously there are things that, I think about and experience personally, and there's also things that I experience and and think about in regards to my clients, and there's sometimes overlap, sometimes distinctions, Uh, but men, sometimes, I think we struggle to realize how much we are still influenced by these notions of what it means to be a man uh, in particular around finances and family and being a protector and a provider and those ideas, which it's not a bad thing to be a protector and provider of your family. I mean, shoot, just biologically speaking, right? We're protecting our progeny, our DNA. I mean, it, it makes sense. Okay. And, and providing right. financially in our current society is part of protecting and allowing the people, our children, our partner to thrive uh, and supporting them in that especially for the partner, but it's, I remember talking to someone once, not a client, actually a friend in this case, and they made pretty good money and their wife made substantially more than they did. And, you know, we were talking about it and this was someone who part of the millennial generation, like I am. And, you know, many of us tend to believe partners should be equal. And I remember saying to him, Hey, just so you know, if I were you, I might consider like spending some time reflecting on 
how it feels for you that your wife makes a lot more than you do. And he's like, no, 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 I'm totally fine with that. And I was like, oh, I know you're fine with it, right? But I always like to distinguish between your kind of conscious brain and your unconscious brain. Forgive me if that's not oh, at yeah. all technical or scientific yet. I don't have that. No, 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 that's that's great. <laughs> that's great. Yep, no, we, we definitely could use that. Okay, language. sounds good. Uh, and it's like, okay, consciously, yes, right? I believe uh-huh. it shouldn't be a problem. Men and women are equal, but I mean, you have to look no further than the idea of unconscious bias. And if that's something anybody listening hasn't come across, I mean, Google it, but give yourself some time because you're going to end up down a rabbit hole of just how quickly we make yes. these judgments and how things are just there by default in our unconscious, subconscious mind, whatever it is. Uh, and so consciously, yes, he's like, man, it's no big deal. My wife can make more. That's It's great. But I said, you know, I was urging him. I was trying to, let me say not urge. It was more like nudge him to like, hey, you know, but maybe spend some time on that other part of your brain. And he was like, no, 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 it's all good. And listen, he wasn't paying me. So I had to practice my good boundaries right. and be like, all right, you know, I said it, whatever. Yeah, yeah right. But I just, right. that that had a big impact on me because here was a guy who was smart uh, progressive minded in terms of how he thought about relationships and brought up right. from my point of view, a pretty healthy amount of self-awareness. Uh, and yeah. yet that for whatever reason, wasn't able or willing to get there at least in that moment. And I think this is, it's, it's a broader thing. Like that's the first place is just acknowledging, Hey, you know, there's, there's been articles like this and, you know, I remember reading an article years ago called by a a white person who said, I am racist and so are you. And the idea being not that we have Uh conscious prejudice against people of color. And by the way, this, whether you're white or whatever ethnicity you are, you write those, you might say, I believe everybody's equal regardless of how they look, regardless of their gender, regardless of their sexual orientation. But years and years of programming and messaging and seeing things it doesn't just get undone overnight and it usually doesn't get undone by accident. You know, in this world, there's enough things occupying our time and energy. You have to be really intentional typically uh, to experience growth kind of along those axes. So, you know, let's play this out a little bit and let's pretend this guy was actually your client and married to, his wife and they come to see you about something and she's saying, Hey, look, you're kind of backing out on taking financial responsibility here. Like I'm making the breadwinning. Yeah. You're making some money, but like you're not showing up in the household financial decisions. You're not, you're not doing the Mm -hmm. dishes. You're not doing, you know, your share of the laundry. Like, because I think those things come up. I need Lord knows like this is, literally why I've gotten into this work is I married a breadwinning woman. Mm -hmm. I'm progressively minded in explicitly stated values, but my internalized value system is much more conventional. Right. I mean, in a just neutral way, my father worked and full time, my mother worked part time. So my mom, you know, in a classic way, did the dishes and did the laundry, two very stereotypical things. Still today, this weekend, I come home from being out and I see the laundry there in the bedroom undone and I have this visceral quick response like, what the fuck? Excuse my language, everyone, but 
that's this is real, right? This is me. <laughs> like, and I'm uh, that it's like, why didn't she get the dishes done? And then it's like with my more conscious values yep. come in line, like, well, she didn't get the dishes done because she was spending time with the kids. She worked all week. You normally or the laundry, you normally help with that. Like, so being able to be progressively minded doesn't mean, I think exactly what you're saying, that you don't still have these unconscious patterns or expectations and being in denial about them is really problematic. Yes. And this is not, I mean, listen, you see this everywhere you go, right? You see it in relation in marriages and intimate relationships. You see it in community organizations. You see it in activist movements. I mean, these unconscious biases uh they creep in and it's just that it's so easy to fall into familiar patterns unless you bring some dose of uh intentionality to it but you know it's like also how can we do enough work that we're in the neighborhood without that work consuming all of our being Right. Because I know people where it's like it becomes their their entire focus is like basically finding all the things that are imperfect about their approach or their perspective. And like you said before, there is no Shangri-La and you could you could end up missing the forest for the trees also. But yet at the same time, those unconscious biases are the things that you might be like, oh, I've done enough. But because of the things you're unaware of. Now you're right. So it's it's such a morass. Oh yeah, <laughs> it is a morass, and I really appreciate highlighting that because I, I think people. I thought I think it's the big five personality assessment: conscientiousness, mm-hmm. right? And I see with many of my clients that are high on that conscientiousness scale. Subjectively, sure. I don't have them take the big five, but you know, look at that. And they, when they start to learn about these things, they can get, and, yeah. and I have, I, Lord knows I have, like I've spent so much time, quote unquote, searching my soul, trying to rid myself of those things. It, and we'll bring up religion, like root yeah. out the sinfulness yep. in me. It was kind of that, the religious lens. So I think maybe what I'm hearing from you, Adam, is like couples and individuals are in it together. They're going to have these unconscious biases and they're going to shape the way they show up for each other in the relationship. But maybe the more important question is, is it safe to have some places of duplicity or blind spots and to be able to talk about it? Yeah. And, and it's so true, right? Um, in my own relationship, uh, as of recording time, I'm engaged to hopefully we'll be able to figure out COVID and wedding soon enough, but (laughs) I'm lucky enough to have found someone who is extremely sharp and self-aware and, skilled communicator before I ever met her. Uh, but you know, there was some moment, I don't know, maybe a couple of months ago and it actually, I think had to do with food. And I noticed, I go, Oh my God, I am so vindictive. Like there is when I'm like, you wrong me, I'm coming right back at you. And outwardly, I am, I mean, I, I think I would, without having done the big five either, I think conscientiousness would always have been something where I would have scored high. You know, it's something that has been always important to me, to be honest, probably uh, like from trauma and coping mechanism of not trying to upset my caretakers. But, uh, 
you know, of course, a valuable skill nonetheless yes. in adult relationships. And she was kind of like, oh, yeah, you figured that out, huh? Yeah, I've known that. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, oh, man, okay. But, no, listen, I mean, but she she made it okay until I had figured it out for me to be imperfect. She recognized there was something going on that wasn't right consciously intentional. Uh, and now right. when I catch it, I'm like, Ooh, oh, sorry. It's being vindictive there. And she's like, yeah, I think you were okay. Right. And it's not saying that it's perfect or uh, always right. easy, but I think create the reason I shared that story is because what you were saying, if we can create the space to be imperfect with each other. And it's funny because one of the big distinctions that I make between the work I do versus uh, a lot of other money coaches, even if they're working with a couple, when yeah. most money coaches or money influencers on social media, right? When they talk about your money mindset, your money scripts, your relationship with money, usually where they're going is let's identify this money mental block or this unproductive narrative or this way of looking at things that doesn't serve you so that we can root that out and maybe create something new in its place. And I am supportive of that work. I'm like, great, awesome. But what I found, what matters more, what actually drives the progress and growth of my clients, my couples is actually, can I surface that share it with you, which takes some courage and vulnerability. And can you love me regardless of that? I sometimes or often or almost all the time show up in this way in this situation, right? Can you be able to recognize, okay, this isn't actually an attack on me. This is something that my partner is dealing with. Right. And of course in the other direction, um, and so when I have my clients work on their relationship with money and their history with money, my primary objective is actually to increase understanding of self and other. The, the working through the blocks and healing money hurts or whatever you want to call it, it, it it'll happen, right? It, it typically oh, does happen sure. along the way. But yeah. I see that as more the incidental part right. of it because I don't care how, right? Um, <laughs> I think of this song, a pop song, not saying it's a perfect example of healthy relationships, but it goes, uh, it says like, I got issues. You got them too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, so give them all to me and I'll give mine to you. Right. Uh -huh. And I could critique with some nuance there, but bigger point being, it's like, Hey, if we can just hold each other as we are and as we aren't, that is like, I don't want to put a number on it, but it is a large percentage of the battle right there oh yeah it's a huge part of the battle absolutely and that i think borrowing from carl rogers very well-known client-centered therapist mm -hmm. talks about unconditional positive regard right and it's a, about holding space for your partner to be fully themselves and that includes the conscious and unconscious pieces and meeting those unconscious pieces with empathy instead of outrage or indignation and really being able to assume yeah. or give your partner the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, I think you really, 
you know, something I've been thinking a lot about in the last week or two is about how hard it is for nice guys and good girls who are high on that conscientiousness scale to recognize their own vindictiveness. Oh yeah. And to recognize their own kind of anger even oftentimes is they've really disowned those parts. And and you mentioned something also about, well, some of this probably connected to my trauma history. And so however you want to talk about it, I'd be really curious for you to see, to share how you wrap those things together, see them as related. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the personal side, there is a, how would I call it? Kind of like a, uh, a generational trauma. I don't know where it started, but you can track the lineage of people who are very sensitive and feel their pain and hurt deeply on an emotional level. And, when we do, right. we struggle to cope with that. You know, we don't know how to deal with these big feelings and the kind of default learned, right. observed way of dealing with them is shutting down and putting up really serious walls. Personally, I like on the attachment end of things, I think fall on the anxious side, but yet I put up that wall, which is kind of what we traditionally associate with of the avoidant type person. Uh, So if nothing else, it just goes to show that people are complicated and be careful about using words in any given language because (laughs) the meaning words are static and their meanings are, you might want to make them static, but they're really not. And people are dynamic, even if the words are static. So, but yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing struggle. Um, I think I have just been really open about it with my fiance. Like, yeah, this is something I noticed that I struggle with. And, you know, it's funny, Ed, there's like, you know, the point where you have no awareness about it, which was like most of my life. And then whatever stages of starting to cultivate awareness And now Uh I feel like I'm in this stage where I don't have mastery over it, but it's almost like I can see it, but I can't stop it. It's like, uh, you know, I think you're a baseball fan like I am, if I remember correctly, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, all-time great Yankees closer Mariano Rivera. He threw basically one type of pitch. And in baseball, pitchers tend to throw three, four, five different types of pitches to keep batters off balance and confused. He threw a cut fastball. And they, sure. you talk to him, but you talk to even the batters of face, and they go, we knew what was coming. We knew here comes the cutter, and they still couldn't hit it. And I feel sometimes like a batter facing down Mariano Rivera's cutter. I'm like, you're you're putting that wall up, or you're being vindictive. Yeah. Just don't do it. And then you do it. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. And in baseball, pitchers tend to throw three, four, five different types of pitches to keep batters off balance and confused. 
he threw a cut fastball. And they, sure. you talk to him, but you talk to even the batters who face him. They go, we knew what was coming. We knew here comes the cutter. And they still couldn't hit it. And I feel sometimes like a batter facing down Mariano Rivera's cutter. I'm like, you're, you're putting that wall up or you're being vindictive. Yeah. Just don't do it. And then you do it. Uh, you know, absolutely, 100%. And I think metaphorically, right, I was working with a client uh, in the last week or two when I said, because she was describing this, like, I could see myself doing, getting angry, going down that path. And it was like, I could not stop myself. And I said, you mean it's like that kind of like cartoon where you're the person that's <laughs> put the broomstick on the gas pedal to send it over the edge and it's lodged in there and you can't get it out and you just like, Dying because you know, like, mm-hmm. I'm going over the edge and there's nothing I can do to stop this, right? And that's the way it gets for our mind and brain sometimes. And you know, fortunately, the neuroscience yeah. uh, helps validate a lot of that. That our so much of our brain is automatic processes and we yep. need it to be that way by and large. And you know, of course, there's that counter argument of like, we and I think you said something in your notes about 100% responsibility. And so there is this dynamic tension of yeah. taking 100, 100% responsibility for even our automatic processes. So like, it doesn't make it okay for you to emotionally sure. abuse your partner or physically abuse your partner or somebody else. Right, right. Even if, right. Even if we can't attribute it to past trauma, unresolved trauma, and automatic processes, it still doesn't make it okay. But we can help you come through some of that shame and recognize this is a sign that I still have work to do to help my mind and brain integrate my experiences. Dan Siegel talks a lot about the the power of a healthy mind is an Mm. integrated mind between mind, brain structure, and relationship. And so it's a massive journey to get there. It is. And sometimes it feels like a moment to moment journey. You know, I have it right now, but now, oh, it's gone. Yeah. I mean, when I think about 100% responsibility, like you said, it's a, it's an ongoing journey, uh, but for someone who is interested in this, but maybe it's like pretty new to them, listen, if you can do the responsibility piece just of your conscious mind, that is huge there, right? And so an exercise I've sometimes done with the client is like, okay, imagine you are observing the dynamic between you and your significant other right? If your goal was to write this, you're now you're the author, right? Uh-huh. You're writing the scene. And in this scene, you yourself are uh, the troublemaker, right. right? You're the primary cause of the tension, the conflict, whatever. It's like, how would you write that scene? And when you do that, sure, you can always recognize, I, I use the phrase, it takes two to tango, more times than I can count with clients. And so, uh, oh yeah, you know, uh-huh. a, a very typical dynamic for me is that for heterosexual couples that a, the female partner will reach out to me or, or spouse. Right. And, and my husband is such and such way and he gets defensive and he's not uh, nice when it comes yeah. to money or he's mean or he's feel like he's controlling. And like you were saying before, being controlling, being mean, those things are not okay right? They're not healthy. There's things to work on there. But when they write the narrative that way, they are somewhere along the kind of victim continuum. They're closer to that end of things. And certainly when we're talking about like emotional, physical abuses, that's a different context here, right? We're talking about 
functional relationships, even if they're far from perfect. Uh, and right. so when you put yourself towards that, or you slide yourself kind of down that continuum towards the victim side of things, the corollary to that is that you don't have much power, right? You are just the person having to react and respond to the situation. And that's right. Sometimes just to flip that and be like, okay, well, again, if you were rewriting this and, and you were the troublemaker, what would you say? Usually there's something there like, you know, yep, yesterday wasn't the first time that my husband was defensive or nasty when money came up. And it probably, or yesterday wasn't the first time I avoided bringing something up and now I'm feeling resentful. So, okay, right? What did you not do in the past that you maybe could have done? Or what kinds of emotions are you now harboring towards your significant other because this hasn't been addressed that presumably you are projecting onto them in some way, right? If you're feeling resentment towards your partner over something as significant as money, where we spend 40 plus hours a week working to earn it, right? And for many of us, that's our primary motivation for our jobs, where we're paying bills every day, we're living in an apartment or house that we pay every month rent for, right? We're buying <laughs> things every, I mean, money is, is constantly there, right? Um, if you have resentment towards money, right? That kind of Absolutely. whole area, Absolutely. it's going to spill over in some way, shape or form. And, you know, I think people yeah. get tripped up because they say, well, but, but he did the worst things. Maybe. Right. I, I, you know, I try not to get in my work too much into moral or, or blame <laughs> only because it may not, it's not always productive towards what the couple actually wants, but, uh, absolutely. That's the whole point. If you can look at your piece and say, you know what? I got to apologize to you because I know money's been a tough area for us, but you know, I haven't done what was needed to make sure that I got to a healthy place around it. And so I've been harboring yucky feelings and resentment and anger. And, and I'm yeah. realizing I must be projecting those onto you. And it's probably no fun for right. you either. Like, and, and I'd like to try and work on that. I mean, it's just, that's a whole other type of conversation versus, you know, you're the worst when it comes to money. We need to go to a counselor. I mean, that might work, but Usually we, we've already, we've started from a place of blame, shame, right? Yeah. Negativity. Um, and it's not to say that the way I just spoke about it is the only way oh, yeah. you have to sound like I do. You know, I'm a very like hyper careful with my words kind of person by nature. And it's okay if anyone is different or very different. Uh, sometimes we'll say to usually a prospective client, but sometimes an existing client, it's like, listen, has what you've been doing been working? If the answer is, is yes, then keep doing it. If the answer is no, or it's not working, right. not working as well as you want it to, I'm going to try and give you some other ways to think about it, some other ways to approach it. And by the way, Ed, I think what comes out there for me is how perhaps a yeah. distinction as a coach versus a therapist, these lines are, are not totally clear, but what like, in theory, the therapist often may center their focus on how do I support this client in healing their, let's say, their discomfort around speaking up and, you know, asserting their needs and boundaries. And as a coach, I care about that, yeah. but I right. also tend to focus on, well, given where yeah. things are right now, 
how can I get them communicating about this, right? How can I get that moving towards yeah. a healthier place as efficiently as possible? And, you know, that admission may not heal all of the stuff that has them avoid the topic, but it opens, it opens the door for connection with their partner and for the ability then to have another conversation, whether it's on their own or with a coach or therapist that can then further the healing. Yeah. Well, I mean, God, there's so much in what you just shared, but I think what's one of the things I want to focus on and have couples hear from this conversation is about the moral judgment against your partner. Right. And that is a very, very slippery slope to walk down with your partner. And in very simple ways, I hear it oftentimes like we have, and this was what makes money and couples so fun to work with and so challenging is our values are on display and at stake yep. and what we value and how. And so the classic dichotomy that I often see is between materialism and experientialism. We should spend more money on experiences in life that has a higher moral value than materialistic consumption. Mm -hmm. More practically, why the hell are you spending so much money fixing up the house and making it look pretty? And we should spend more money on going on vacation or retire sooner. Right? Like that's kind of the where it falls in a very practical yep. terms for a lot yep. of couples. Yep. And there are real implications for that. But I think when you when you frame it through the moral lens, you miss the human behind uh, the moral framework. Agreed. Like you're not you're not seeing the actual person behind it and who they really are as a person. And if you're morally condemning your partner and saying your values around how money is spent are wrong and mine are right, that puts your partner in an inherently one down position. Yeah. They will be reactive to that. And so I think, you know, you were so spot on and saying, I'd really try to help the couples. You didn't say it quite this way. So this is more sure. my way of saying <laughs> this. Let's, let's suspend moral judgment for a minute here and let's get curious right. mm -hmm. about what's really going mm -hmm. on here. Yeah. And uh, you know, the curiosity is something I talk about a ton, but also, you know, sometimes on that topic, helping them see the benefit of their significant other's way of relating to things. And, you know, if the couple has been together for any amount of time, for example, you could say to the person whose preference tends to be more around, uh, you know, making the house look nice or having nice things or even saving towards retirement to retire sooner, you can say, you know, I'll ask them kind of leading question about like, so tell me, uh, have there been times in life where you were hesitant about spending on a certain experience and, you know, the other person, your partner encouraged you like, yeah. Like, and did you enjoy some of those things? And they kind of smile, like, you know, a little head down, like, yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, they definitely, yeah. it's okay. Uh -huh. So it's not one is better than the other. It's almost like you have to laugh at, how much the very things that we fight about are the same things that could make us be so synchronous. Right. But, and of course it's the other direction. Uh -huh. I mean, you talk about the yin and yang, like yeah. they complement each other. That's the idea. They are different energies, but put together, they make the full circle. And 
you know, that's the goal in the relationship. Listen, there's a reason for the phrase opposites attract. Um, And while I don't know its origins, but in a lot of important ways, we see, you know, I think at least for me, opposites, when I hear that word, I tend to think of like polarity, like really strongly different. I am like yeah. plus a hundred and you're minus a hundred yeah. or vice versa. Right. I'm a, I am yeah. like oh, a yeah. unconditional oh, yeah. extrovert and you just only want to be at home. Right. But it doesn't have to be that, right. It could just be, you're roughly equally far away from like the exact center. Right. I'm like extroverted, but I like my yes. time at home and you're introverted, but you don't, you actually enjoy being with people and you're friendly and outgoing. Right. Like, okay. That yeah. also is, complimentary and so the more we can see those things as opportunities and i know it's not easy i'm not saying it from any 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 place of authority but sometimes even just introducing that idea hey that thing that and i guess it's a variation on the exercise from before hey this story where you're like that situation where your partner did something that just made you Right. What if you rewrote that story and it was something that was really helped. There was something there for you to learn or or to teach you. And there was a way for them to moderate Uh for no other reason than because like you said, by necessity, our brains operate in default assumptions and snap judgments, which means, I mean, you have to recognize that that is actually a gigantic percentage of our existence right <laughs> like huge, huge huge in which case inevitably you're going to miss a lot of things because you're not programmed to notice them or see them and you've actually got this other person who's committing their life to you right to build something together yeah don't miss out on that right like like take advantage of the opportunity it's a huge opportunity and i think you we want. I want to value the automatics, especially around money. And I'm going to try to tie this together for one last hmm. topic for us to wrangle through is um, couples that partner across very different upbringings, cross-class marriage. But before I share that, I want to share this anecdote today. My son graduated from the fifth grade. So proud of oh, him. Congrats. And we ended up at the fine restaurant, Olive Garden. His hey. choice, not, not mine. You know, fine. It was what when the, you're yeah. there, your family. That's it's uh, yeah. It, it's his graduation and lunch, not mine. So whatever. But when we think about money and how how many assumptions are built into that, you know, he's 11. He's a smart kid. He's asking questions, but he's like, Dad, how does the waiter get paid? And so I start explaining about tipping, right? And how does that work? And it's a percentage of sales and so on and so forth. And then we're working through it, but it's like. And, it's, and you know, I'm telling him, like, well, dad does 20% normally. But I'm thinking about it, I'm realizing that's probably not everybody's rule, right? Like, different people have a different percentage or way that they approach yep. tipping. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so on what moral ground could I say, well, my tipping is better than yours, except for maybe I say, well, it's more money and you're being stingy. But, you know, I mean, I could make that claim <laughs> if you do less. But someone could be like, well, Ed, why, why not 25%? You know, and so it's like, Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the waiter was Angelo. Shout out to Angelo at uh, Olive Garden of Charlotte. The guy was awesome. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, well, maybe we'll give him a little bit extra, you know. So we did 25%. And it's, you know, it's more about that lesson in flexibility 
and <laughs> saying, real, like for me, even recognizing, right? Like I have my own money rules that I, I go out to eat pretty regular. I tip 20% and I don't think about it. Yep. I don't have to and I don't want to and it shouldn't be a problem. Right. Because it makes it easier. But when my son is coming up and he's trying to figure out how the world works, I have to really slow down and think about why do I do this the way that I do it? Where did I learn how to do this? <laughs> and I can remember my dad teaching me how to calculate tip. Now, this mm -hmm. was before they did it for you automatically. Sure. Right? But you know, move the decimal over one spot. And that gives you, you know, 10% and then, you know, mm -hmm. you can double it for 20% kind of thing. And yep. so anyhow, I share all that to say, we have so many working assumptions about how money should be done. Yep. And if you're in an intimate partnership with someone, you are going to hit into those assumptions, mm -hmm. right? I'm not going to hit into your money assumptions nearly as much as my wife's, right? Mm -hmm. Nowhere Indeed. close. Let's bring this home with cross-class marriages, different money backgrounds. How do you skin that cat with couples? Uh, you know, because you can sum it up in, you know, a couple minutes easily, I'm sure. <laughs> well, you know, Ed, it's funny. I, I want to first speak about non-cross-cultural couples or couples with similar upbringings. You think that that's, you know, you might hear that and think it's going to be easy somehow oh, but actually yes. what i tend to find granted there's a selection bias and who comes to me for coaching there are people who are struggling <laughs> course, to relate though. right but uh yeah, i can't right. tell you how many times i've had clients who came from both let's say very poor backgrounds and they had very different relationships to it one person became the i don't know if i'm gonna have money tomorrow so i might as well enjoy it and the other person became yes. the yeah, I don't know if I'm gonna have money tomorrow, so I am going to grab a hold of it and like squeeze it, squeeze it so hard, Tight. right? Yes. Um, now yes, imagine yes. people came from different backgrounds. Here, here's the bottom line, Ed. People, I can't tell you how many times. I mean, probably well over half, maybe even over two thirds of uh, prospective clients put on their intake form something very similar to we have different money perspectives. We came from different experiences, different backgrounds, some version of that, some iteration. Right. And right. I'm always like, so, and therefore what? Right. <laughs> but I don't mean it yeah. to be like just a brat. It's like, right. okay, so fill in the blank for me. Therefore blank. Yes. What is the actual issue here? Right. That we had that I grew up right. upper middle class and you grew up, you know, uh, blue collar. It, I'm not saying it's not, there isn't anything related to that. That's uh, challenging or creates tension, but let's even define it in the first place because it's not automatically right. Like I said before, it can actually be seen as, you know what? I had some blind spots about the plight of the blue collar worker and uh, family and my significant other has helped me appreciate that more and, you know, be a little less judgmental by default when I, I meet people who don't have a college education or, or right. Just, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just making this up certainly as I go. We're filling in details, of course. But yeah, yeah. at the end of the day, it's the biggest thing you can do is just share and listen. And I know it's might sound trite or overly simplistic, but it's like, okay, yeah, I want to hear about how you grew up with money uh, and, and 
you know, what you learned and how it influenced you, whether it influenced you to go, you know, in the similar direction to what you saw or in an opposite or different direction from what you saw. And, you know, I would say for all the people out there in, in partnerships, like don't underestimate the benefit of literally just sharing that with your partner and having them share their version with you and not having to like take that and then apply it in any particular way. Oh, so it means we should get the name brand raisin brand or like, you know, the post right. Or Kellogg's whatever makes it <laughs> right, uh, right. just to hear it. Um, just to hear it. Just to hear it shifts, shifts the experience of being with each other. Doesn't it? It doesn't necessarily, I really like that. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to change what we're buying or not, but it may even change the feeling about why we're buying what we're buying. Yeah. And at the very least, a lot of times it's easy. We're like a, okay. We're like a, a therefore culture, right? So we talk about something, (laughs) maybe we get into our feelings a little bit and then there's semicolon, therefore comma, and we want to fill in the blank, right? right? Translate it to action. It yeah. doesn't always have to. I think when that's our orientation, because I see this all the time with, with my clients, they're already thinking ahead to, okay, so now what should I do given that I know this thing? I'm not saying that there should be no analysis or new actions. I'm just saying where I see most of us tend to struggle is the new thing you just learned about yourself or your spouse. Let that thing breathe a little bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And let it be a complete sentence or a complete thought. Yeah. And then start a new thought or a new sentence. And it sometimes that is literally as simple as let it be a period in terms of the cadence. Wait a few seconds, take a couple of breaths, and then start saying something new. It, um, like it gives that sense of emotional completeness that just doesn't get there. Right. I mean, if you imagine someone who say, listen, I'm sorry for the way I acted, but well now how, what, you know, a huge yeah. percentage of the apology is like, it doesn't feel so good anymore. Right. The ability to say, I'm sorry for how I acted period. Doesn't mean you can't talk about later the thing that was going to come after the, but right. it just means let that breathe. Let that breathe, I think, is so critical. And my understanding of that, let that breathe, is allowing your brain to integrate what just happened. But when we keep pushing through, it doesn't allow our brain to really store what's happened. It it takes vulnerability to say, I am sorry for how I acted, and have that be a period, a full stop right there. Yes. Because you are like, if you embrace that, as a complete thought. Now you're sitting in that silence waiting for what the other person's going to say. Do they accept my apology? Do they appreciate it? Are they going to say something nasty back? Am I safe to apologize here? You're like on alert, you know, depending on your background, your trauma, how you show up in the world, you may be like waiting for the hammer to drop. Right. And that moment is very scary. Right. So it's natural then to want to fill it in with a, it could not even be a, but you did this. It could be a, and so I'm going to do this in the future. I'm going to be better at it. Just, just apologize and apologize. 
we'll worry later about, you know, do you need to set an alarm on your phone to make sure that you're home on time to help put the kids to bed? Mm. We can sort that out. The logistics are the easy part in the human relationships. Not saying they're easy, but they're often the easier part, right? When you have healthy relationship and you let good relationship process function, logistics become a non-issue. And so, right, I think as we wrap up this conversation for today, that's most of the couples that are coming to us are coming with some sort of logistic issue. How much they're Mm -hmm. spending or not spending, how much they're saving or not saving, how they're using the money. It's some logistic issue, but it's beneath it. It's about the relationship and how they see themselves and see their partner, which is what you talked about so eloquently in the middle of this episode is what we're really working on. Both Adam and I is changing how you see yourself and see your partner and how you see your partnership. Three pieces, Mm -hmm. how I see myself, how I see my partner and how I see this relationship if we can get those things moving in a healthier, more productive direction, everything else gets so much easier and can be figured out. It happens all the time when I'm working with couples where they're stuck on, you know, the tax burden that they that's unresolved and they really are desperate for my guidance on how to solve this tax burden. And we work on something about who they are as a person and what this means and what it means to their partner. They leave that session and the next week they come back and they've come up with an incredible solution about solving their tax problem that I could have never come up with that would not be half as good as what they came up with. And so please let this be an encouragement to invest in, in learning, knowing and healing for yourself as well as your partner and your relationship. Adam, what an incredible time. If people want to connect with you further, where are your favorite places to hang out online? You tell people if they're loving what you have to say, how do they connect with you? (laughs) Well, ESPN is probably my favorite place in mind, but you won't connect <laughs> yeah. with me there. Uh, except to see my terrible March Madness bracket once a year. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, all, joking aside, uh, pretty much everything I do goes by Couples Financial Coach. So the website's couplesfinancialcoach.com. Uh, you can find my podcast on there. You can find the Couples Money Personality type quiz on there. You can find a way to schedule a consultation on there. The podcast is called the Couples Financial Coach Podcast, and you know Instagram, Facebook. It, the handle is Couples Financial Coach. So, try and keep it on brand. And uh, yeah, you can always as well shoot me an email if you want something to be a little more private. Adam at couplesfinancialcoach.com. And uh, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, I think that's terrific, and you're definitely the kind of person I'd love to chat with. So, yeah. feel free to reach out. Adam, what an awesome time spending uh, this last hour together. It's gone by so fast. I already have three more episodes Indeed. in my mind about what we're going to talk about. So uh, <laughs> just know an invite will be coming for another uh, another interview in the future. Hey, you know, I'm not mad about it. Awesome, man. We'll keep up the great work and uh, we'll see you. You too. Take care. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. 
wishing you healthy love and money. Ed.